This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Seeing Red. Welcome back guys, I hope you had a lovely Christmas and Happy New Year. And this is our first show of 2019 and we've got lots of exciting things planned for this year so stay tuned. Yeah, thanks for joining us again guys and hope you enjoyed today's episode. Mark's going to be telling us a story today so take it away Mark. Okay, so in the summer of 2014, just as the nation was cheering England on in the FIFA World Cup, one man's obsession with chemsex and so-called unconscious pornography was about to collide with horrific consequences. Within 15 months, four young men would be dead at the hands of this predator, and the police, whose reputation would lie in tatters, would announce the re-examination of 58 unexplained deaths in the preceding four years, all linked to this sexual deviant. Wow. This is the case of Stephen Port, also known as the Grinder Killer, a serial killer who stalked the gay community of Barking in East London, a killer who had it not been for the perseverance of his victims' friends and families, would most likely still be out there, drugging, raping and murdering his way through London's gay scene. I remember this case from at the time. It's such a shocking one and I seem to remember that the police just didn't really make proper links and they just did like a really rubbish job of it. They did do a rubbish job, yeah. They've been Mm. really condemned for the complete lack of investigation into these four deaths and... We'll kind of come on to it a lot more as the episode progresses, but mm-hmm. it it really was the family and the friends who pushed the police yeah. to investigate. And the family and friends actually conducted the vast majority of the investigation themselves, That's which is just terrible. You really that? shouldn't yeah. have to fucking do that. But I also really hope if anything happens to me and like my friends and family would really push for that. I hope you're going to be pushing for it. Of course I would. But, but you also think you shouldn't, your friends and no. family shouldn't have to do that. No, you should be able to rely on the police. Yeah. 
So, Stephen Port was born on the 22nd of February in 1975 in Southend-on-Sea and subsequently brought up in Dagenham in East London. At school, he was an introvert, a loner, someone who lacked the normal social skills required to form friendships and consequently, sadly you might say, he was bullied. Former classmates would go on to explain how when they first met Port, they had actually assumed he was deaf as he was so withdrawn and quiet. In adulthood, he was somewhat of a dichotomy. He was a tall, striking man, probably for all the wrong reasons, because he's really fucking ugly. (laughs) But he has been described as having this real physical presence, yet beneath this hulking exterior lay the same introverted personality that had plagued him in childhood. He is, I suppose, like like the epitome of a man-child. After coming out as gay at the age of 26, Port had a series of boyfriends. All of them were boyish, in their 20s and slim. Having trained as a chef, Port moved out of the family home at the relatively late age of 30 and into a flat in Barking. He continued to live there on his own for the next decade. I think like now, 30 is probably not that late to move out. But I think back then, I think that probably was a little bit. I feel yeah. like nowadays, though, people stay at home for ages. Yeah, I don't mean to judge anyone. It, oh, I, no, no. I suppose that was it. I think it was in 2004 that he yeah. moved out. So pre-credit crunch. Yeah, that was probably mm, late then, but definitely not now. In his early 30s, Port made money as an escort, commanding £165 an hour. But as he approached middle age, his looks and his hair began to recede. So much so that by the age of 41, to maintain his confidence and sexual prowess, Port had begun to wear a floppy blonde wig, which he glued to his scalp. Oh dear. I think just embrace the the bold look, like shave the rest of it off and be like a Vin Diesel looking type or something. I don't think he was ever going to be a Vin Diesel looking type. No, honestly, sticking a wig on your head. To be fair, from the photos I've seen, and you'll put them up on Instagram, Mm. it kind of, it looked okay. And definitely looked better than his bold head. I didn't realise it was a wig. I've seen pictures of him loads of times and I, I didn't know it was a wig. So. I don't think I did at the time. And I remember seeing that bold head then and thinking, well, why is he bold? Why did like, he shave his head so yeah, yeah, yeah. So working as a chef at the canteen of the Stagecoach Depot in West Ham, Stephen's life revolved around his job and his colossal consumption of sex and drugs. In 2005, just after Port moved out of the family home, a man called Ryan Edwards got to know him as a neighbour. He lived opposite Port, so had a good view of his flat and could see a steady stream of young men coming and going. Port had a balcony and he would almost sort of parade these men on this balcony for all to see, which is really weird, like he was (laughs) proud of them. Ryan Edwards said Port's appetite for young men was enormous. He said it was like an insatiable thirst, one after another, after another, after another. At times, it seemed like Port had a different guy every day. I feel like this neighbour's a bit jealous and he thinks he's living the dream, I'm going to be honest. I think there's an element of, you know, like twitchy curtains peering out of his window. But if you've got a neighbour that's probably quite interesting, maybe you would constantly be looking at them and thinking, what the hell are they up to now? I just feel like he's making a big deal out of this different guy every day. I'm really judging him. That's harsh. It seems a bit like he's judging him too harshly. Yeah, but I think think it might be so, you know, in lots of ways, because it wasn't just that that he saw. There were other concerning things, which I'll come on to. Yeah, fair enough. So aside from his sexual antics, Ryan also said Port had a peculiar childlike personality, and he described one incident where, at a party he was throwing, Port chose to ignore everyone there, 
instead opting to play with a toy truck on the floor. Oh, that's weird. And he said he was in his own world, like in a little dream world as he was doing it. Oh, yeah, no, that's creepy. Okay, judge him away. It gets worse. On another occasion, Ryan said he called round Port's flat unexpectedly one afternoon. He said it took him ages to open the front door, and when he did answer, his eyes were red raw, he was slurring, and he looked like he hadn't slept for a week. Ryan remembers sitting down on the sofa and noticing on the coffee table a massive clear container as big as the table containing sachets of white powder and dozens of vials of clear liquid. Ryan remembers thinking to himself at the time this was far beyond anything anyone would have for personal consumption. Whilst Port struggled to interact with people in the real world, he had no such problem online. He had multiple profiles on multiple gay dating sites and used a variety of fake names. On one site, he claimed to have been in the military. On another, he said he was a special needs teacher and on another, an Oxford graduate. Looking at this now, it does seem that Port was almost trying out these multiple identities Mm -hmm. and he would use really old pictures of himself, pictures with different wigs as well, so that he would look different in Mm -hmm. each profile. In terms of men, Port had a type. He was attracted to twinks, especially twinks who he could sense were vulnerable in some way. I think you need to just like... Give a definition of the word. I'm coming on to twinks. (laughs) So, yeah, if you're my mother's age um, and you don't know what they are, then I'm going to explain. So, Mm -hmm. according to Wikipedia, they do have their own page. um, Twink is gay slang for a young man in his late teens or early 20s whose traits may include general physical attractiveness, little to no body hair, little or no facial hair, a slim to average build and a youthful appearance that belies an older chronological age. So, anyway, this neighbour of Port's Ryan met some of Port's boyfriends, and he said some of them confided in him, and one said Port had actually pushed him into a TV in a fit of rage. So this this Ryan guy actually, like, maybe he's not set... I was thinking he was just some random neighbour that wasn't actually part of Stephen Port's life, but actually he'd gone round to his house, he'd met people... So it was a bit more than just a curtain twitcher, actually. I yeah, he was yeah. He was pretty much a friend, I suppose. Oh, I think he yeah. knew that Port was a bit weird, but they were friends and he knew him for or about 10 like years. neighbours, you get yeah. to know them, yeah. And he seems like a really nice guy, he's a yeah. good guy. Oh, I feel bad now for you are saying bad. he was jealous. I still think he was a little bit jealous, though. If you see maybe, maybe. a string of people, but yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So another boyfriend said Port had been violent to him on a number of occasions and Ryan said he saw a trend in later years. The issues described were becoming more sinister. Most of Port's boyfriends said he was manipulative, argumentative and mentally controlling. And it is perhaps because of the latter that they would often stick around despite the abuse they suffered. So to summarise, I wanted to do a little summary. Oh, (laughs) Something new. (laughs) Something new. Something I'm trying out for 2019. Oh, I like it. So since moving out of home at the age of 30, Port had immersed himself in a world of chemsex parties and online porn. Maybe I should describe what chemsex is. Mm, Yeah, I think so. So I think it's just like people that do a load of drugs and have sex. So you're on drugs while you're While you're having sex. Mm. So it's almost like an orgy and they would have particular drugs. So I think things like crystal meth... Um, so anything that makes you like feel GHB. amazing anyway yeah I and guess then you're so also having a good time yeah so he'd immersed himself in this world and whilst we'd never condone drug taking violence or manipulation I suppose to some extent it was his life and despite being a really shitty boyfriend he wasn't really doing much harm 
that was until 2014. Yeah, because if everybody's like, you know, agreeing to go along with all these things, like they yeah. want to take drugs too and have sex. I think apart from beating up your boyfriends and all of that, that's obviously really bad. But yeah. the rest of it, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's his choice. Um, but yeah, things things took a really bad turn in 2014 when mm. Port's fantasies started to become a reality. And that's the thing, you're always going to see an escalation. It's only for so long that the almost play acting is going to suffice and then you are going to see people... We've, we've seen it loads, yeah. yeah. We saw it with that case you did with in Helena Ireland. O'Hara's yeah, Helena O'Hara. Yeah, um, he started off sort of like just holding a knife while he was having sex and then... Or like, it was just by the bed, wasn't it, at the beginning? Yeah. And then, then he'd have to hold it, then yeah. he would have to threaten them. So we, we quite often see an escalation. Mm. On the 19th of June in 2014, Port called 999 anonymously, claiming he had discovered a man collapsed outside a block of flats in Barking. The man in question was 23-year-old Anthony Walgate, a fashion student from Hull. When police arrived on the scene, they were greeted with a clearly deceased Anthony, who was slumped against a wall with blood and bruising evident on his exposed torso. In order to establish Anthony's identity, police searched his bag, and along with the usual stuff, they found a vial of GHB. Now, again, I'll um, explain what this is. So, GHB, or I'll try and pronounce it, gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, is essentially a party drug, and it's used for its hypnotic and, I think, euphoric properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, often used in chemsex parties, it's a sex drug sometimes referred to as liquid ecstasy. Um, But the interesting thing about this drug, it's really easy to overdose on it, Mm. as Bethan knows to her detriment. (sighs) Joke, joke. We haven't even got, what, 10 minutes into 2019? (laughs) That's the the only joke I've got in here. Good. So Anthony Walgate's mum, Sarah, said her son was the life and soul of the party. He wanted to make people laugh and he had a real zest for life. She said he threw himself into everything he did. He was passionate and driven. Anthony was studying fashion and design at Middlesex University and renting a room in Golders Green at the time of his murder. His mum said he wanted to be a famous fashion designer for everyone to know his name. Reflecting after Anthony's murder, she said he did get fame but for all the wrong reasons, which is just really sad, isn't mm. it? He sounds like a really like cool guy. He sounds like someone I'd love to hang out with. Yeah. So Port was obviously questioned and provided a statement to Barking and Dagenham Police, but they accepted his claim that he had simply found the body. Anthony's mum was on holiday in Turkey celebrating her birthday when she received the news of her son's death. She had turned her phone off for most of the holiday. When she switched it on as she prepared to come home, she could barely comprehend the hundreds of texts and missed calls. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So she phoned her son. I mean, she literally, there was so much there, she couldn't even really read it. So Mm -hmm. she phoned her son, her other son, Paul, and he told her what had happened. Sarah said she doesn't remember anything after that call. She went into shock. And when she landed back in the UK, she immediately rang Barking and Dagenham Police. They told her Anthony had been found dead in the street. Naturally, she asked what had happened. They were dismissive and said basically they weren't treating his death as suspicious. They said the coroner had carried out a post-mortem and nothing significant had turned up. She asked where his phone was or if they could at least track it, Mm. but they said it would be too expensive to do that, which is appalling. It's disgusting. So in a sign of how unbothered the police were about Anthony's death, his mum waited two and a half years for his property to be returned to her. And when it did come back, loads of stuff was broken or damp and mouldy. 
Which is just Horrible, tragic. Yeah. Also, how can you say that there's nothing suspicious about his death? So, one week after Anthony's death, police received a call from one of his friends advising Anthony had hooked up with a man called Stephen Port via a male escort website called Sleepy Boy, and that was literally a couple of days before his body was found. When Port had messaged Anthony asking if he was free to visit his flat in Barking for an overnighter, Anthony had texted friends about the arrangement for his own safety. The police soon realised this was the same man who had dialed 999 to report the finding of Anthony's body. On the 26th of June, Port was arrested in connection with the death of Anthony Walgate and his laptop was seized and his DNA was taken. But if you think justice was catching up with Port, then Mm -hmm. you would be wrong. He was simply arrested on suspicion of perverting the course of justice as he had denied knowing Anthony when he found the body. You almost get the feeling the police just thought he was a bit of a local weirdo at this point, um, kind of getting in the way of the investigation, Mm. and that he was probably a bit too thick to carry off a murder. After changing his story, Port admitted he had hired Anthony as an escort for the night, but Port said he had died from a self-inflicted drugs overdose. He claimed Anthony had taken GHB when he arrived, and then some more of the drug a couple of hours later before becoming violently ill. He said Anthony seemed to get better and that when he left to go to work in the morning, whilst Anthony wasn't in great shape, he was alive and he was okay. However, he said he got back after an eight-hour shift and found him dead, and he panicked. Port was released on bail, and his trial was set for the following March. Sarah, Anthony's mom, kept chasing the police. She asked them if they had looked at Port's computer, if they had looked at Anthony's computer even. They said they hadn't and they appeared completely disinterested. Now, to give you some context around how shit the police were, if they had simply looked at Port's computer at this time, they would have found vital evidence. So immediately before accessing Anthony's escort profile on Sleepy Boy, Port had conducted multiple Google searches as follows. Date, rape, drug... Unconscious boys rape video, boys being drug raped, and unconscious porn videos. Mm, what an absolute freak. Port had satisfied his sick fantasy of raping a comatose young man, and what's more, at this point, he'd pretty much gotten away with it. So, an interesting aside at this point, it could be that Port never actually meant to kill Anthony. He could have got the dose mm-hmm. of GHB wrong. He might have just tried to drug him so that he could have sex with him whilst he was comatose. Yeah, because none of his searches say that he wants to kill someone with that. No, and he didn't have sex with him after he died. So, mm. I think, yeah, was it just something that went wrong? Um, maybe he realised that he would never get away with drugging and raping young men unless he killed them afterwards. Or maybe, I, I do think that your, your first sort of point is probably true, like, especially if GHB is something you can overdose very easily from, I think he, he wanted to drug and rape someone, which is just hor- horrific anyway, but I don't, I do think that that was it, you know, it just went wrong, and that's why he tried to hide the body and did a really shit job of that, calling the police then also still being the same person. Like, it was just a bit, that's a bit rubbish. I mean, he obviously, obviously, obviously had these sick fantasies of raping people while they're unconscious, but, you know, he, he'd obviously decided to, to start acting upon that. Mm. And I do wonder if, you know, in order to act upon that successfully, you need the victims not to remember that mm. and to go to the police. And although you will have, you know, memory kind of problems after you've taken GHB, some of the victims may have remembered and yeah. reported him to the police. So it could be that it was necessary for him to kill Definitely. his victims to get away with it yeah. and to keep 
keep doing it. So fast forward a couple of months and Port struck again. 22-year-old Gabriel Kavari from Slovakia had moved to London in June 2014 for a new life. Looking for a room to rent, Gabriel had noticed an advert on a gay dating site called Bender, which I, th- I thought you'd love that, that better. That is hilarious. It's a great name. Brilliant. Um, and a man called John Paper posted this advert. He had a spare room to let. So he met with Gabriel and when he met him, he saw a smart, sweet-natured man and immediately um, he let the room to him. All was good until six weeks later when, on the 23rd of August, Gabriel suddenly announced he was leaving the next day. John Pape didn't pry and said Gabriel had pretty much kept himself to himself since moving in, so he didn't really feel it was his place to question him. Um, but in subsequent interviews, he, he said he definitely regrets that to this day, but there's, mm. there's no way he could have foreseen what was going to happen. Yeah. So the guy Gabriel was moving in with was Port. Mm. Port had offered him his sofa rent-free. Gabriel had told a friend that he didn't want to sleep with Port, who he had described as kind of weird, but he said a rent-free home was worth it. So there was obviously this sort of mm. arrangement of payment in kind. Do you know what I'm thinking as well? Even if um, Stephen Port didn't mean to necessarily kill at first, like I wonder then once he's done it once and the date rate drug has kind of gone too far, that's probably when he then realised just how much fun it could be for him obviously not like in general but yeah I wonder if that was it maybe the first time was a mistake I think you know the first time probably was a mistake and he mm. realized he got away with it and well that's and thought well thing, this yeah. is easy I can just keep doing it and I've enjoyed it so I'll keep doing it so he's on bail at the moment still he's on bail trial, yeah, yeah awaiting trial mm-hmm. I think what was also interesting is when Ryan the neighbor described going round to Port's flat unexpectedly that time and Port took ages to answer the door and his eyes were red, he looked like he hadn't slept. I wondered if Port had almost been doing what Elaine O'Hara's murderer had done Mm -hmm. and self-administering different doses of GHB in order to ascertain what Mm -hmm. the right dose was. Yeah, possibly. Made me think of that case quite a bit, actually. Mm. Port introduced Gabriel to Ryan, the guy who lived opposite, and Ryan said he was a really nice guy. He was articulate, intelligent and well-spoken. He had a passion for art and was an aspiring artist. They kept in touch after that first meeting and Ryan said in one text Gabriel sent, he said cryptically, Port is not the man you think he is. He said he wasn't happy living there, but before Ryan could do anything to help, Gabriel suddenly disappeared and all communication stopped. This was just five days after he had moved in with Port on the 28th of August. Concerned, Ryan asked Port where Gabriel was. Initially, Port said he didn't know, later claiming he had left to go and stay with some random army guy, before eventually saying he had gone back home where he had died from a mystery illness. In actual fact, Port had killed Gabriel by administering a lethal dose of GHB before moving his body to the graveyard of St Margaret's Church, which was about a five-minute walk from Port's flat. As was his MO, Port had raped an unconscious Gabriel before he died from that overdose of GHB. Gabriel's body was discovered by a woman called Barbara Denham. She was out walking a dog when she saw someone slumped against a wall. At first, Barbara thought they were asleep, but she soon sensed something was amiss. As she drew closer, Barbara could see a young man wearing dark glasses. She could see they were sort of halfway hanging down his face and she could also see he was wearing a t-shirt that was all sort of twisted and half pulled up around his pale torso. As she approached the man, she touched his bare skin and it felt cold. Isn't that interesting, like, how insightful you, like she could be 
to see that sort of him sixth like sense. Someone, yeah, someone had dressed him, and I think I think you would. It's yeah. weird, isn't it? You know that sort of really interesting. that look is something that's just deeply ingrained in you. Mm. You know something's not right there. Yeah. So she called police, and as was the case with Anthony Walgate, they suspected Gabriel had died from a self-inflicted overdose. Consequently, his death was not treated as suspicious. They tracked down his recent address, which was John Pape's house. They didn't have a record of him living with Port. Mm. Um, so they tracked down his recent address. It was John Pape's house, the guy he'd lived with before moving in with Port, and advised him that his former lodger had been found dead in a cemetery. John said he was immediately suspicious and felt compelled to understand what had happened. And I sort of get that because mm. this guy had moved over from Slovakia for a new life in London. You've met him pretty early on in his on his arrival, offered him a room to rent, probably got to know him quite mm -hmm. well over six weeks, and five days after moving out, he's dead. Yeah. So I think although you're absolutely not responsible, you're going to feel compelled to know what the hell happened, and it's probably his family that are going to be questioning mm -hmm. you. So, not happy with the police's assumption that this was a drug overdose, John started his own investigation. And this is something, as I said at the beginning, that we'll see throughout this case. The real hardcore investigative work was done by the friends and families of the victims, not the police. John simply typed into Google, unexplained deaths barking, and a link came up about Anthony Walgate's unexplained death, Port's first victim. In the article, it said police were appealing for information regarding the unexplained death in Cook Street. He then put Cook Street into Google Maps and he could see the close proximity between Cook Street and St Margaret's Churchyard. It was all too familiar. Two young gay men found dead three months apart mm. in similar circumstances. John was raging. Police did not link the two deaths or issue any sort of warning to the LGBT community. Had they been warned, they could have protected themselves or at least come forward with relevant information. One week after murdering Gabriel, Port used one of his profiles on the gay dating site FitLads to contact 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth. Such good names, haven't they? There's, there's loads of them, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, say that again, his name. Daniel Whitworth. Mm -hmm. Port suggested they meet for a drink and then dinner at his flat. He even said in a text to Daniel, just so you can get to know me a bit, Make sure I'm not a psycho. Three weeks after Barbara Denham had found Gabriel's body, she was walking in the same churchyard when she saw what looked like another young man in pretty much the exact same spot. What? Speaking later, she recalled thinking, I can't believe this. Please don't let this be another body. But of course it was. Oh. Daniel's lifeless body was slumped against the same wall. And once again... Barbara Denham found herself calling 999 to inform the police she had found a lifeless body in St Margaret's Churchyard. At the time of his death, Daniel had been living with his partner Ricky in Gravesend in Kent, and he'd met him through Lads Lads, the dating website, so it's another one. <laughs> he was working as a chef in Canary Wharf and was passionate about cooking, according to Ricky. He liked to drink, but he never took drugs, aside from cannabis on a trip to Amsterdam. As with Gabriel's death, the police did not see anything suspicious here. I just don't understand how they're not making a link. I could understand s slightly if this was going back a couple of decades and we didn't have the police forces kind of talking to each other and it had happened in different states. Different uh, boroughs, yeah. I could maybe understand that, but this is all within... Well, these two are in the same place. <laughs> it's all within about a quarter of a square mile. This is the third unexplained death, mm -hmm. the second in three weeks... 
um, in exactly the same location. Yeah, just beggars belief. These men have got so much in common with each other. Yeah. Not just the location, but as people as well. So how is it not? Young men in their 20s, gay. Um, So, yeah, the police didn't treat it as suspicious. And this was in part due to the fact that Port had placed a fake suicide note Mm. near to Daniel's body which suggested he had been in a relationship with Gabriel and that they'd been using GHB and that Gabriel had accidentally overdosed and died and now Daniel was taking his own life out Mm. of remorse. Police honed in on this suicide note and essentially, for them at least, it was case closed. Mm. Another drugs overdose, albeit a suicide on this occasion, a suicide that put any doubts over Gabriel's death to bed. I mean, did they even check the suicide note properly? Did they check it matched him, his handwriting or his style of writing? His... Yeah, I mean, I'll come on to that mm. because they, they, they did a bit, but they did a shit job of that yeah. as well. Um, so for Daniel Whitworth's stepmom, Mandy, it was the beginning of the end of her world. Recalling how she had heard about stepson's death, she said there was a knock at the door. Two police officers greeted her on a doorstep, and as soon as she saw them remove their hats, she just knew. Standing at the door with Daniel's father, Adam, the police said they were sorry to inform them that someone matching Daniel's description had been found dead embarking and that it looked like he had taken his own life. Mandy said she had never known pain like it, but even in that moment of immense grief and shock, she knew that Daniel hadn't taken his own life. She said he was happy, everything was going his way. That he could have killed himself with a drugs overdose in a lonely churchyard just didn't seem to make any sense. Despite essentially closing the case, the police did send a small sample of that note to Daniel's family in order for Mm. them to verify it. Um, But his family said, well, you know, we don't really see his handwriting on a regular basis. Mm. We just text. Um, So I don't really know if that's his handwriting. They couldn't be 100% sure. And I I get that. I can understand that. I think some people write all the time and then some people, yeah, you might not ever see their handwriting. Yeah. Mandy recalls that she had a birthday card from Daniel, which was all she had to compare the note against. And the police said they had experts in this field who would look at the handwriting so it could be analysed, and that's what they thought had happened. Later, Mandy and Daniel's father saw the whole suicide note, and Mandy recalls that it was so cold and to the point it was really matter of fact. Mm. She said Adam, Daniel's father, voiced his concerns immediately, and she said nothing in that note told her that it was from Daniel. It also said, don't blame the guy I was with last night. She said that was the first question she had. Who was he with then? And the police said they didn't know and they wouldn't be able to answer every question that she had. I mean, Stephen Port's a bit of an idiot, isn't he? Writing stuff like that in there as well. Yeah, it's just, it's so childlike. It yeah. really typifies mm-hmm. his personality. Definitely. Even when he lied about Gabriel going back home and mm-hmm. dying of this mystery illness, he couldn't just come up with something more plausible. It had to Whoa. be almost this childish, this crazy mystery illness, and yeah. he's died. He could have just gone home. Yeah. And, like, it's a completely different country, thousands of miles away, so nobody's really going to question that. So John Pape, Gabriel's landlord, grew even more suspicious when he heard about Daniel's death. This was now the third death in the area. They were all young gay men, all having died from an apparent drugs overdose. Already suspicious and conducting his own investigations, he knew at this point that something was very wrong. 
During this period, Port tried to bolster his cover story. Using a fake Facebook profile, he posed as a fictitious man called John Luck, a 21-year-old former porn star from California, now living in Dagenham. I mean, even that's fucking stupid. <laughs> he had to go balls out, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, honestly. He could have just come up with something more believable. Yeah. So, posing as John Luck, he claimed to have known Gabriel, and he started spreading rumours online about his and Daniel's involvement in dangerous chemsex orgies. He said they had regularly frequented parties where older men were plying them with drugs and having sex with them, even alleging that one of them awoke from a drug-induced coma to realise they were being fucked by one of the older men at the party. I've said it like that because that's how he wrote it. What he was also doing at this point was he'd befriended Gabriel's boyfriend back Mm. in Slovakia on Facebook and he was corresponding with him loads, pumping him for information about the investigation. So maybe there were, maybe, you know, the more he was hearing about the investigation, the more he was thinking, oh shit, they're they're on to me or they could be. Yeah. Yeah. So he befriended Gabriel's boyfriend and that, you know, they talked for months. Mm. That's so cruel. John Pape went to the police to escalate his concerns, but he was essentially fobbed off. They said they would get a senior officer to contact him, but this never happened. In early 2015, Port was convicted of perverting the course of justice during the investigation into Anthony Walgate's death. He was sentenced to, and I've seen varying reports of eight Mm. months or four months, um, but the long and short is that he only served two. He was released on Mm. licence on a tag. On the 23rd of June in 2015, Daniel's parents were summoned to the inquest into his death. They were confused when the coroner stated they, the family, had identified the writing in Daniel's suicide note as his. They had never emphatically said this to the Mm. police. They had alluded to the fact it could be, but ultimately, as I said, they said that they just couldn't be sure. The and co- they also were told that there was going to be a handwriting analysis done. So yeah. yeah, and the coroner asked the police if that had been done, mm-hmm. and the police said that it hadn't. So bad. And when the coroner said why, uh, the police just said, well, you know, we didn't think there was anything suspicious here. Sarah, Daniel's stepmom, strongly believes had the note been properly analysed, they would have known it was not Daniel. And this alone would have pointed to foul play at the very least, Mm -hmm. if not murder. And that would have prevented a number of deaths. Sarah recalled the coroner asking the police about a blue bedsheet that Daniel was found on that his family knew nothing about. The coroner asked the detective present if they had done any DNA testing on the sheet and the detective said no. When asked why, he said again, I didn't feel that there was a need to scrutinise the bedsheet because we didn't think anybody else was involved. The DNA on the bedsheet would have most likely matched Stephen Mm -hmm. Ports and the police already had his DNA on file from when they'd arrested him for perverting the course of justice. Mm. Daniel's family then heard he was bruised under the arms. Sarah remembers thinking at this point that he was definitely taken to his final resting place. He did not get there by his own means. Yeah, that's someone lifting you and dragging you, isn't it, under the armpits? That's not... The coroner, you know, pretty much said that and said he'd been manhandled um, shortly before his death. Mm. The coroner recorded an open verdict saying he couldn't rule out third-party involvement and Sarah begged the police to reopen the case, but they said no. The inquest signals the end of the investigation. I think an open verdict is is tragic, Mm. isn't it? There's no closure for the family and the police are saying that's it. We've had the inquest, it's all done. She said she couldn't help but feel the whole incident was being hurried along so that a line could be drawn under it. 
On the 13th of September in 2015, barely a week after Port had had his tag removed and nearly 15 months after his first kill, he was on Grinder again, this time exchanging messages with 25-year-old Jack Taylor, a forklift truck driver from Dagenham. On the night of Saturday the 13th of September, Jack had been drinking a few beers and a couple of whiskies at the trading club in Dagenham. I know that for a fact because I read it. Mm-hmm. Not making it up. Okay. okay. When he returned home at 1.10am, his father Colin was still up and remembers him coming in, but the next morning, his parents found him missing. He had hooked up on Grinder with Port and taken a taxi to Barking. Jack was still not home by the Sunday night, and the next day, two officers turned up at his address to inform his worried parents that his body had been found in the park adjacent to St Margaret's churchyard. It's a bit, I know you said earlier, it's just frustrating that if the police had even just linked them a little bit better, even if they hadn't necessarily linked them and, and solved the cases, like you said, they could have warned the gay community yeah. to look out for people, you know. At least a couple of the guys have mentioned Stephen Port's name to to friends or have you know noted that it was him. But there's so then, much they could have done. You at least you wouldn't maybe not just don't hook up with random strangers in you know because you know that you've got to be a bit more careful. It's just rubbish that they weren't warned at all. And I think John Pape, um, Gabriel's landlord. Mm. You know, when the police didn't really come back to him and were fobbing him off, he actually went to, I think, you know, one was like Pink News UK, which mm. is a gay newspaper. And he went to an organisation called Gallup, who work, uh, you know, between the police and the LGBT community. So he got their backing and they actually mm. then approached the police and said, uh, you know, we've, we've got this guy who's informed us of his concerns around these deaths. Yeah. Can you please look to investigate that and come back to him? Yeah. And they just declined. The police also informed Jack's parents that a syringe had been found in his pocket and also a packet of white powder was in his wallet. They said a needle mark was present on his arm. But again, I don't think he was a drug taker. It was all planted there. Jack's family knew something wasn't right. Two weeks after his death, Jack's sisters contacted Barking and Dagenham Police to get an update on the investigation. But there was no update. The police weren't investigating. As far as they were concerned, Jack had sat there taken drugs and died and that was that. Jack's sisters Donna and Jen began their own investigation. They sat up until 4 or 5am every morning researching on the internet and it wasn't long before they came across the other boys who had been found embarking. All of these deaths looked suspicious to them. All early 20s, same area, GHB. The sisters questioned the police to see if there was a connection but they said there wasn't. And it's really these two sisters that drive this case forward. Officers eventually agreed to show them where Jack's body was found. And at this point, they also told the sisters that they had CCTV footage of Jack meeting a man. Unbeknown to them, the man in the footage was Stephen Port. They asked the police if they knew who the man was and they said no. The police, again, just didn't seem bothered. Donna and Jen asked the police to release the footage of the man to the media, but they declined as they said they weren't treating Jack's death as suspicious. After much persuasion, they did eventually agree to release the footage, and lo and behold, two days later, on the 15th Mm. of October, Port was arrested for the murders of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth and Jack Taylor. At this point, somewhat wisely, I think, the Met Police moved the investigation from Barking and Dagenham Police to a specialist homicide unit. 
Stephen Port's trial began a year later and the papers were filled with all of the salacious details of Port's depraved life. As is so often the case in such crimes, the victims were treated as a mere postscript. Ahead of sentencing, Jonathan Rees QC prosecuting read aloud to the court from victim impact statements. Relatives of Anthony Walgate described their devastation. His mother said Port had not only destroyed their family, but had destroyed his own. Gabriel's brother Adam said the impact on his family of the loss of his only brother could hardly be described in words. His murder had changed their lives forever. Adam Whitworth, Daniel's father, described living two parallel lives where grief tainted everyday life. Friends had told him that the light had gone out in his eyes. Isn't that sad? That's a horrible thing to hear about yourself, isn't it? Yeah. Bless him. His partner and Daniel's stepmother Mandy said she had become bitter and cynical that the rich and fulfilling life ahead of us with Dan had been stolen from us. Jack Taylor's family said their lives had been destroyed and they had had to suffer the devastating effect of his body being exhumed. They endured endless sleepless nights and family members had to take significant amounts of time off work sick. The loss of the son, brother, uncle and brother-in-law had left a black hole in their family that will never be filled. On the 23rd of November in 2016, Port was found guilty of murdering the four men and drugging or sexually assaulting a further seven. He was found guilty of 22 offences in total and sentenced to a whole life tariff. In sentencing Port, Mr Justice Openshaw said, and this is interesting, he said, I accept his intention was only to cause really serious harm rather than to cause death, but he must have known and foreseen there was a high risk of death, the more so after the death of Anthony Walgate, the first victim. Mm. So the judge is basically agreeing that Port didn't really set out to kill these people. It was almost a bit of an accident. Yeah. A high-risk game that he was playing. I don't know. I I think after Anthony Walgate's death, he thought, I can get away with this, mm. and this is one way that I can pursue my sick fantasies yeah. and get away with it. I think it'd be quite telling the other seven where he had drugged and raped them, whether they were within the same time scale or whether they were before. Because if they're before, I think he's escalated and he's actually found that he enjoys the killing as well. If it's intermingled, then perhaps these were the very, very unlucky victims compared with the others. I do wonder, I, and for the judge to say that in his sentencing remarks, be interesting to know for sure. It is interesting, was, yeah. yeah. And to be, you know, he's been found guilty of murder anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose it doesn't matter to some extent. Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting point you've made because, yeah, there were seven other victims at least, yeah, potentially at a least. lot more, um, that were the lucky ones, I suppose. They lived to tell the yeah. tale. So, yeah, I mean, if you let seven people live, uh, yeah, that, maybe he just fucked up on the other four. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad he's in for a whole life tariff, though. He doesn't seem like the sort of person you'd ever change or no. be re- rehabilitated. So, Mr Justice Openshaw said, the murders were committed as part of a persistent course of conduct of the defendant, surreptitiously drugging these young men so that he could penetrate them whilst they were unconscious. A significant degree of planning went into obtaining the drugs in advance and in luring... Luring? Luring. I say luring. Luring. (laughs) I don't know. And in luring the victims to his flat. 
Having killed them by administering an overdose, he dragged them out onto the street in one case or took them to the churchyard in the other cases and abandoned their bodies in a manner which robbed them of their dignity mm-hmm. and thereby greatly increased the distress of their loving families. Yeah, I definitely agree with that point. The way that they're left and found is just so degrading. Again, it's yeah. like another insult added on. The judge said, I have no doubt that the seriousness of the offending is so exceptionally high that the whole life order is justified. Indeed, it is required. The sentence, therefore, upon the counts of murder is a sentence of life imprisonment. And he said he declined to set a minimum term. It would be the whole life tariff. And he said you will die in prison. There were loud cheers and applause from family members in the court while someone in the public gallery shouted, I hope you die a long, slow death, you piece of shit. DCI Tim Duffield, senior investigating officer from the Met Homicide and Major Crime Command, said these evil crimes have left entire families, a community and a nation in shock. He said Port was one of the most dangerous individuals he had encountered in an almost 28-year career with the police. And he said a full life term in prison was the only appropriate punishment in these circumstances. Outside court, Jack Taylor's sister Donna said, we finally have justice for Jack and the other boys. A sick and twisted scumbag will never be able to hurt or destroy any other family's life. Jack can finally rest in peace. We will always be completely heartbroken. And if you get a chance to, if you want to have a look at the statement she gave outside court, it's on YouTube and, you know, she she delivers it so powerfully and it really sums up her determination Mm. to find justice for her brother's murderer. Port's family later said they continued to believe he was innocent. Speaking anonymously to ITV, his mother said, I know my son, he's a kind boy. He said all along, I didn't murder anyone, mum. Honest truth, I didn't murder anyone. David Etheridge QC for Port said in mitigation that at that period in Port's life, he had descended into a vortex of drug taking where gratification of his sexual life was central. Anthony Walgate's mum has since spoken out to condemn Barking and Dagenham police for their inept investigation into her son's death and she has accused them of institutional homophobia. Donna and Jen, Jack Taylor's sisters, have gone on record to say the police are just as guilty as Port and they could have prevented Jack's murder had they carried out a proper investigation. In October 2016, the Met Police referred itself to the Police Complaints Commission over potential vulnerabilities in its response to the four deaths. They said officers are now trained about this type of crime with the help of LGBT organisations, but even that statement makes it sound homophobic. So, you know, you really do think, have they learnt any lessons here? An inquest into all four deaths is due to be held in 2019, following the quashing in the High Court last year of previous inquests into the death of Daniel and Gabriel, in which open verdicts were initially recorded. The Independent Office for Police Conduct is looking at whether any charges of gross misconduct should be brought against officers involved in the initial inquiry, which obviously allowed Port to slip through the net. It has said it will consider whether homophobia played a part in opportunities being missed and it's not expected to publish its findings until after the inquest is concluded next year. So we'll keep you updated with with those findings. But yeah, really, really sad case here. And I think what what is really interesting is it's the families and friends' Mm. determination to uh, get justice for for their loved ones that actually got Port convicted. Had they not done that, 
port could still be out there. Yeah. And they are looking into 58 unexplained deaths yeah. in that area where yeah. young men have died in similar circumstances. So port could be a mass serial killer. Yeah. So tell us what you think. Reach out to us on mm-hmm. all the usual social media platforms. You know we love that. We are on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can email us. We always forget to mention that, but you, we've got the old school ways to We do. Do. What is it? What's the email address? Info at credpodcast.co.uk. I always say .com. It's .co.uk, it definitely, I'm sure, it? yeah. If it bounces back, just try it .com. Um, but yeah, please get in touch with us. We love it when you do. And if you want to leave a review, then you can do that. We can see all of your reviews, whether you leave it on iTunes or Podcast Addict, mm-hmm. wherever. Uh, we always try and take that feedback on board. Lovely. Well, all that remains is then to say Happy New Year again. Hope those hangovers aren't too bad by now. You're going to be a mess, aren't shut you? Shut up. <laughs> I'm doing dry January, so... Uh, oh, shut up. Uh, that's weird. Oh, no, I'm Poor sorry. me. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.